0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back up here. Uh, Last week, we took a little bit of a break because we had gospel sing. um, And uh, man, this place was packed, too. Um, And uh, so this week, we're going to pick right back up um, in our series in Exodus. And we're going to look at Exodus chapters 7 through 10, four chapters of Exodus as we look at the first nine plagues that God brings to the people of Egypt. So it's a lot. We're going to kind of jump around and like grab different portions of the scripture. And, um, and so you can open your Bibles and be there, but I'll put up on the screen all the stuff that we're going to read through this morning because we're going to go through, we're going to take such big leaps through it. Um, so I want to start with Exodus 7, chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read you the first couple verses there, the first seven of verses. I'll put them up on the screen just to give us some context for what we're, what's going to be happening this morning. We've been talking over these last many weeks, as we've been in Exodus, about about this holy God and his holy people that he has really created, this whole nation full of people who've been living in slavery and bondage for hundreds of years in Egypt. What we've seen from the very beginning is that Pharaoh has made himself an enemy of God. He has made himself an opponent of God very directly by trying to kill his people, keep them down in number, enslave them, and break them in their will. In their will. And so God tells Moses, much earlier even than this, that I'm going to send you to Egypt uh, with your brother Aaron, because Moses doesn't have a lot of confidence in his speaking ability, and, uh, and you're going to tell this to the Pharaoh. And he basically lays it all out for Moses. He says, uh, you're going to be, you're gonna tell them to let, your people, let my people go. He won't. And as he does not, I will even harden his heart to essentially draw out this sort of adversarial relationship between God and between Pharaoh. And this week we look at where that really comes to a head at the most, which is, uh, it's why the, 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 the name of the message really is simply God versus Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh has made God his enemy and God is about to unleash 10 horrible plagues upon the people of Egypt. Now, we often get to this point and we think, what kind of a God would do something like this? What kind of a God would unleash plagues upon an entire group of people? And uh, there's three reasons why he does this, essentially. The first is the most obvious. He wants to deliver his people from the Egyptians, and he wants to wear them down and wear down their will so that his people will be released and will be let go permanently. They will be freed. Okay, that's the biggest and clearest reason. God is a rescuer of his people, he is uh, He is one who will pursue his people when they are in captivity, and he will bring them out of it they 've been praying and crying out to him for hundreds of years, and he has heard their prayers he says, and he is going to be a God who rescues them but he isn 't just a god who rescues he is also a god of justice, and that 's the other reason why God will do this. I was thinking this past week about I was trying to think have there been times that i 've like felt like i've i cap- like 've been in captivity in some way or i 've been rescued or something, you know. And, um, and the very clear example that I can think of, the clearest one was a time that I was literally in captivity because when I was in high school, I decided to make some very bad choices and end myself up in jail. I was a sophomore in high school and my friend and I decided that we would break into his neighbor's house in the middle of the day. Nobody was home. We didn't even take anything. We were not smooth criminals because uh, when the police showed up, because again, it was three in the afternoon, when they showed up next door to the house that had been broken into where the young boys were seen going, and they knocked on the door, and we answered the door, and they said, uh, What have you guys been up to today? And my friend said to them, We didn't break into that house over there. There he you go. Yep. And they, and they, they, they were, they were brilliant, genius police officers. They, they separated us, and we turned on each other, and they put the handcuffs on us, threw us in their car, and took us to jail, took us to the police station. Now, uh, I guess I had thought up until this point, I was in high school. I thought up until this point, if this ever happened to me, if I ever found myself getting arrested because that's kind of how it feels. You find yourself, you go, you like wake up and go, what have I done? How have I gotten here? Right? Uh, You, I I thought to myself, I, I had always kind of thought if I got arrested or something, that it would mean that I was tough. It would mean that I had like done something that was bad, but I would probably at least get a little bit of respect from my peers. I wasn't getting a lot of respect from my peers at that time. And you know, I'm thinking you go back to school the next day and I got arrested yesterday and like, whoa, whoa, stay away from that guy. Watch out. He's a scary, tough guy, right? Turns out, that's not how it happened because the moment that the handcuffs touched the skin of my hand i burst into tears and i <laughs> cried and cried and cried i cried in the police car i cried at the police station i cried during the fingerprinting i cried in the picture in the mugshot i just kept crying i cried so much that at one point they said okay if we take off the handcuffs and if we take you out of the cell and we just put you in this chair over here, will you stop crying? <laughs> and I said, I can't promise anything, I can't. So they called my mom and I, they told me that my mom was there to pick me up and I was so happy because I was finally going to get to leave jail, convinced I would eventually go back to prison for the rest of my life, you know, that, that was what they would ultimately decide. And they said, your mom's here. She's coming to pick you up. And so for the first and clearest and biggest time in my life, I was released from captivity. And someone was there to rescue me and to save me. But uh, I learned something in the moment when I saw my mom. And it was that while my mom is a God of rescuing and a God of saving, she is also, uh, not God, did I say God? Well, my mom is a mom of rescuing and saving. She is also a mom of justice it turns out because they opened the door. She was sitting at a conference room at a conference table there in the police station. They opened the door and I walked in and I saw her and I saw her face and I can't can't really convey how much can be in like this, you know, but it was all there and I saw her face and I walked through the door and I stopped and I saw her and then I just went and I thought like, which one of these is going to be worse for me? (laughs) Like, I don't know. I, I, they, they've, actually <coughs> they've actually been pretty nice now that I think about it. And They've actually been pretty reasonable, right? And I don't know what I'm about to go into, right? And so I went home, and they released me to my mom. I was kind of surprised they were even releasing me to her at that point. I was like, wait, did they not know that this is actually probably a bad idea, that someone should follow us home or something? And she took me home, and then there was my dad. And I learned very quickly uh, over the course of that whole experience that my parents, as good parents are there to rescue me and to bail me out and help me out when things are difficult. My my parents don't see their only job as being to get me out of trouble. Their job is to make sure that I never do it again. And their job is to make sure that I understand that there is right and there is wrong and that there be justice. And I say this because God, when he comes for his people, is not just a God of rescuing, he is a God of justice. He is a God who will finally right the wrongs that had been committed against his people for so many hundreds of years. This is one of the harder aspects of God to accept. This is why so many struggle with the plagues and a lot of what happens in Exodus is saying, I have a hard time accepting that this is the way that God is, that he would do this to a group of people, to an entire nation, that he would pull it apart at the seams, it seems. But we can follow the journey of the Israelites all the way up to this point. We can want so badly week after week to see God show up, to see him come and save his people. But we have to realize that when he does, he brings with him justice and he will right the wrongs. This all started a couple of weeks back when Pharaoh made the mistake of saying one very specific thing in response to Moses. When Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, let God's people go. I'm here on behalf of the God of the Israelites. Pharaoh said one thing. And it was the worst thing that he could have said. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He shouldn't have said that. Because what God now does is he shows Pharaoh. This is why he hardens his heart. This is why he drags it out. And this is the other reason why God uses these plagues. He uses them to rescue. He uses them to, to judge. But he also uses them simply to make himself known. Because Pharaoh doesn't know who he is. And the Egyptians don't know who he is. And furthermore, the world doesn't seem to know or understand who God is. This all began with a man named Abraham, who God came to. And God said, through you, I'm going to create a nation full of people. And through those people, I will be known. Why does God do everything that he does so that he can be known? We know that with certainty. The good, the bad, all of the things that we deal with that happen, we must recognize that God's desire above all else is that he be known by us. And in this situation, he handles things this way because there are a lot of gods in Egypt. There are a lot of gods on people's minds when you talk about God. But this is very different. This is the God of the Israelites. This is the God, the one true God. Genesis 1 exists in part to show us how much God stands outside of nature, that he creates everything and he stands outside of it. Unlike all the gods of Egypt that are associated with different parts of nature, the gods of water and of of fertility and of the sun and of fire and of the earth and the wind and all these things, ours is a God who stands outside of that stuff. He stands apart from it, more powerful than all of it, able to control any of it. This is why when Romans is describing a sinful people, it says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creation rather than the creator. Because our our instinct is to make other gods and to worship other things rather than the one that created all of those things to begin with. And so plagues are coming. They were intended to be a direct challenge to the gods of Egypt because Egypt was not filled with a bunch of atheists. It was filled with a bunch of polytheists, people who believed in a lot of different gods. Pharaoh's line to Moses was this. Fine, have your God. I have my God. You have your God. I don't want your God. And I won't impose mine upon you. And furthermore, God's existed, it was believed, within the realm of where their people live, the very land itself. So there's no way that your God is coming into my land to do anything or tell me anything. This is my land. This is Egypt. And Pharaoh believed that he himself was a God. Challenging God. So here's what we read about. Starting in verse 19. What happens after this is that he tells Moses to show him a sign, and he throws the staff down and turns into a snake, and the Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, and basically to show some kind of miraculous way in which what he's saying has any credibility on behalf of God. But Pharaoh doesn't accept that. He still says no, and so the plagues begin. Verse 19, we're going to read Exodus, okay, sorry, Exodus seven, nineteen through 25, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret alert, secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck down the Nile. So, the first plague is to turn with the wave of an arm, the very water of the Nile, the source of life for the Egyptians into blood and make it not a source of life. The only reason why the people could even live where they did here was because of the Nile. The Nile brought life to them. It was water. If you look at a modern day picture of Egypt, this is what it looks like. This life exists here because there's water running through the desert. There's cities and people and there's agriculture and food and things to eat to sustain those people. And all of that is dependent upon the Nile, upon the water, the pools and the rivers and the streams and all the things coming off of it. And with the wave of one old man's hand with a staff, it turns to blood. It's not usable. They can't drink it. It kills the fish. They pile up and the whole place starts to smell like death. God is, showing the Israel, God is showing the Egyptians from this very first plague, first and foremost, very clearly, that I can take away your very source of life. I can, I can make it impossible for you to even live here if I want to. Now, what would any reasonable group of people do? Well, they would go, okay, let's make sure that we have water stored somewhere else so that if this ever happens again, it doesn't get turned to blood. But what does he do? He turns the waters the bowls. And the cisterns and the places where they've stored water, he turns that water to blood as well. He makes it as clear as possible to these people. There is no way that you can hide from me. There's no way that you can protect yourself from me. There's no way that you as a people can go on living if I choose to keep you from living as a people. Now, this raises an important question, and it is the question of collective guilt. And what I mean by that is this, why will God continue to punish everyone in Egypt? Wasn't the Pharaoh his enemy? Wasn't he the bad guy? There were some slave masters, probably some overseers who were culpable, but isn't it true that it's really this leader that God's going to battle with? Why punish an entire nation full of people? Are they really guilty? Because they seem to be enduring the punishment as an entire group of people, not just the Pharaoh and his leaders. There's a well-known quote. It says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Edmund Burke said that. The fact of the matter is that great evils are caused in this world by nations, not because one person gives the order, but because so many people follow the order. And after the facts say we were just following orders. Hitler wouldn't have accomplished what he did without people following orders and allowing what they allowed slavery would not have been possible had so many people given, not given their broad support of it. So what we do is we say, yeah, that was really regrettable. That was a bad thing. That shouldn't have happened. But then we continue to reap the benefits of what it had given us and the system that it has built and even the country it has built. And the fact of the matter is the Egyptians were a people who lived in a pretty good country that was doing well largely because they had a huge workforce of slaves. That they had done well because they had slaves. They had built more, they had grown more, they had multiplied more on the backs of slaves. And so, whether these people thought they were guilty of it or not, the fact of the matter was my life is good as an Egyptian because I've allowed, because these people have been in slavery here for so many years. I'm benefiting from it. And so, the punishment applies to all. Sure, God could have taken out the Pharaoh. He could have taken out some of his other leaders. He could have gotten rid of the the Israelites. But the average Egyptian would have been like, that was still pretty worth it if you ask me. Pharaoh got punished. We got a new change in leadership maybe. But the fact of the matter is, we're still the great, strong, prosperous nation that we built on the backs of these people. Even as much as we'd love to say that God loves America more than any other nation, we have to acknowledge that our history is one that involves atrocities like this. The things that have been done to Native Americans, the, 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 the years of slavery that much of, of the early years of our country were built upon, were made possible by, that in a way we still sort of reap the reward from. Even the Industrial Revolution was fueled by immigrants coming over from other countries, packing into densely populated cities and factories and living in tenement housing that was deplorable. That's one of the things that caused our economy to grow and explode and for us to begin to do well at an important time in our development as a nation. That, That throughout different places that you look, you see this. The bloodiest war in American history was the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln and other leaders at the time would often comment on feeling as though this was in some form or another the very judgment of God for this horrible practice of slavery that we had been engaged in for so many years. It was a war in which every life lost was an American life. It hurt us no matter what the outcome, no matter what happened. So for these people, their very source of life is utterly cut off. Their water turns to blood, their fish die, they begin to stink and rot. People can't even set water aside to keep this from happening again. And this is just the first plague. I'm not going to paste this message, by the way, plague by plague for this long, just so you know, if you're keeping track, we're going to speed through quite a few of them. But what comes next is the frogs. He calls down a plague of frogs, and frogs begin to come out of everywhere. They're everywhere. And this plague, above all else, really seems to be more humiliating and inconveniencing than anything else. Whereas the Nile turning the blood completely stopped their way of life, the frogs were just this ridiculous, annoying, embarrassing thing, especially for the leader of the country to have to deal with. Uh, during Passover seders, Jewish children would sing this song, Frogs. It goes, one morning when Pharaoh woke in his bed, there were frogs on his head and frogs in his bed, frogs on his nose and frogs on his toes, frogs here, frogs there, frogs were jumping everywhere. (laughs) They would sing this song to mock the Egyptians and the Pharaoh because that's what this plague mainly did. It turned the place into just a complete zoo And it was chaos. There really were frogs coming out of everywhere. And they began to pile up and they began to die. And so we read in verse eight of chapter eight, the Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord and take to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice the Lord. He gives in. Now, unfortunately, Pharaoh does this a lot. He gives in and then he changes his mind. I believe he probably is truly repentant covered in frogs dealing with the chaos of this saying I will do anything to make this stop and then it stops and things calm down and then he says never mind I'm keeping them there's no way I'm letting you take these people how dare you but this is the first time that he repents he doesn't mean it and so uh, so plagues keep coming the next plague is one of gnats this is Moses strikes the dust and the dust comes up and turns into gnats and they cover everyone and every animal. The magicians try to do this. The Pharaoh's magicians constantly try to match the plagues. They can't. Pharaoh doesn't repent. Then there's flies. And this is the first plague where Moses actually says, the Israelites themselves are going to be protected by the, from this. They live in Goshen. And he says, all the Israelites who live in Goshen will be protected by the flies. And so it begins to become apparent to the people of Egypt Okay, whatever's going on here, it isn't affecting them and it's affecting us. I wonder if this has anything to do with what they were here collecting straw to make their bricks for and this guy that showed up trying to liberate them. Then the livestock dies. All animals belonging to the Egyptians. Livestock means food. It means your wealth. A big part of a nation's wealth is tied up in the animals that it has. And the Pharaoh doesn't repent. One of the things we see with the Pharaoh is a lot of times when the plague just sort of happens... And then it ends, he won't repent. He'll just kind of deal with the aftermath. But when it's an ongoing thing, like frogs on your toes and frogs on your nose and frogs here and there and everywhere, it wears him down. And he says, okay, fine, I'll do whatever I have to do to get this thing to stop. Then there come the boils. Uh, He grabs some dust or some ash out of a furnace and he throws it in the air, multiplies, covers everyone's skin, and people are covered in painful boils that they can't get rid of. The magicians can't even show up to try to do this, which at this point, Pharaoh's probably thinking, guys, I don't want you to do more of the stuff. I want you to fix it or make it go away. And they don't ever do that. Part of, again, why they do these things, why God chooses these things is because each and every one of these plagues is an attack on an Egyptian god. Frogs, the god of fertility that helps in childbirth. Uh, there are goddesses over the water and the Nile that very, very much brings life. Um, gods that protect livestock. Gods that protect, uh, like, kind of your, your, your body's ability to heal that, w- that they would pray to when they wanted healing. They didn't want to be sick. So there's been water turning to blood, frogs everywhere, gnats, flies, all your animals have died. You're covered in boils. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. What he says to them is pretty obvious, actually. God says, I could kill you with one, you know, snap of my fingers. I could kill you and you would be gone. But I'm not going to do that. One, because you continue to exalt yourself over these people. And two, because I am accomplishing something through this. And I'm going to let all of these plagues run their course now. And you as a people will see exactly who I am and you will stop exalting yourself over them as if you're their God. So then he brings hail and there's a warning given for this one. And it's important because God comes to Moses and Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, hail like you have never seen will fall down from the sky. And so if you go indoors, you'll be safe. You'll be reasonably protected by this stuff. So you can tell your people that he says to the Pharaoh. So Pharaoh has a choice. He could take care of his own people at least show himself to be a good leader but he doesn't. The people don't hear it from him. He doesn't pass that word along. He sends Moses away and says, I don't care what you have to say to me. The Israelites make sure they're indoors. They are not struck by the hail. And it's not just hail, it's fire from the sky, lightning and thunder and rain. It destroys their crops. It kills more animals and people. It destroys their buildings, their homes. But fortunately, it hadn't destroyed the wheat because the wheat hadn't yet sort of produced. And so they go, okay, at least we have wheat left. At least that wasn't, uh, that hadn't produced fruit basically or bared fruit uh, in, in time for harvest. And so we still have that. The hail didn't destroy it. And then come the locusts. And the locusts come. Locusts are unpredictable. You don't know where they're going to go. You don't know where, like anything. There's no way to even really effectively track locusts. People have tried. All we know is that they show up in a great cloud and they consume everything. And then they leave and there's nothing left. And so the locusts came and they ate all the wheat. They ate everything else that was left. And then they left. They left. Pharaoh considers letting some people go. Throughout the course of this, he said, okay, fine, your men can go. Okay, fine, your people can worship, but they have to worship here in Egypt. They can't leave. He goes back and forth on all these things, and Moses every time says, no. That's not what we've asked for. That's not what the God of the Israelites has asked for. That's not what he'll accept. This is what he will accept and nothing less. And so then comes the ninth plague, the darkness. It says in the text that it is darkness that can be felt that dark. And for three days, Egypt is plunged into pitch darkness. Now, when you translate the word felt, it's the word grope. Like in the darkness, you grope around in the darkness, trying to find your way. Scripture uses this language a lot to describe people who are blind, living in sin, who don't yet see the truth of what life really is about. Even in the New Testament, when when Paul is preaching in Acts... One of, the most, one of the most incredible things that he says as he's preaching in the synagogue one day is he describes God as somebody that people will begin to see and then he says they will feel their way towards him. Like you're in the dark and you feel your way closer and closer to God into the light out of the darkness. The people are plunged into darkness for three days. Not the Israelites, just the Egyptians. And then we read this. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Next week, we're going to talk about the final plague, about the cost, the ultimate cost in human life for these people to be redeemed and what that means, because it means a whole lot more than just what we read about in Exodus and even more than just what we see about with the Israelites. But when we look at these first four plagues and we see what God's been doing here, and we ask ourselves, like, what does that mean now? The first is this. Where did this all begin? It began hundreds and hundreds of years before with God coming to a man named Abraham saying... I want to be known. I'm not going to start over with a new group of people. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to you know, wipe the earth clean, start fresh. I'm not just going to give you a bunch of rules. I want a people. I'm going to create a nation of people. They will be my people, and that will be the way that the world will know who I am. We'll hear about who I am. We'll see what it is to follow me we had a, a memorial service yesterday for a man named Will Woundvig, who has gone to this church for many years. And uh, at his service, they were talking about how he spent his entire life pursuing God. He studied as much as he could about God. He, he listened to as many sermons as he could about God. Um, he, uh, I heard a story about, about uh, someone, about Sue, Sue's dad, who was, Will was helping him work on his house and he was listening to a sermon really, really loud, like super loud, and he couldn't hear anything going on. And Sue's dad uh, falls off, Sue Berson's dad falls off a ladder, breaks his leg in a bunch of places, is yelling and shouting, and he can't hear him because he's listening to a sermon while working on his house. Calls the police, calls the fire department, they come, they get him. Still, Will has no idea what's going on. Working on the house, listening to the sermon, that's like blasting. Because if you knew him, that was all the stuff that he listened to, right? And he spent, he spent his life, he was an elementary school teacher, he was in construction, he did all kinds of things, he was involved in missions and evangelism, but in everything that he did, in every stage of his life, he just pursued, he wanted to know as much as he could about God, and he wanted to know God, he wanted people to know God. And his granddaughter said something in his service yesterday, she said, some of the best minds can study God for their entire lives and only see him through darkened glass, but will now sees clearly. And I thought that's so true that that, that there is this sort of paradox that we see told to us in Scripture, which is spend your life knowing God, trying to know more about God, know him more fully. That is the goal for all of this. But also know that as you do that, that what you learn and what you experience is is like you're looking through tainted glass And you'll never fully see it until you're with him in heaven. We read about this language of this kind of veiled knowledge that we get in 1 Corinthians. You know, right after it talks about love and all these things about love, it says this, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's this idea that even uh, as we learn about God, as we know God, we'll actually, we'll actually even see things about ourselves as well. But, but we are called to spend our lives knowing God more. That's the goal. Everything that you've ever been through and everything that you will go through and all the circumstances of your life and everything, what's the point of it that I know God more? And if things are great, and if they're awesome, and if I'm happy with how everything is going, then I know God more through that. I don't make the awful, horrible mistake of loving the things that God gives me more than God himself and being distracted by those things. And if my life is hard and it is falling apart or I am filled with fear, then I am to love God and know more about God through that. I'm supposed to know him more. I'm supposed to spend my life knowing God. Why? Because that's, he's been clear in his scripture. He that's why I'm doing all of this stuff. Your work, your passions, your family, your money, your city, your suffering, your pain, you look through these things to see God, to know God more. And it's not just so that we could have more information about him. So that we can actually trust him. I woke up this morning and I was like overwhelmed with anxiety, overwhelmed with fear. And when I get like that, and it happens sometimes, um, it's always just about the circumstances of life. It's about the, the things that can happen, usually that haven't even happened yet. It's about money, it's about being healthy, it's about how much time I have left. It's about all these things that I wish I can control, but I feel like I totally can't. And I get so anxious and I get so fearful. And I realized this morning as I was like in this, in this place and I was thinking about it and I was praying, I thought, man, I am just consumed by fear about some things. And as I'm consumed by fear about these things, I go, I go there's no worse feeling to have than fear. I mean, it is the worst feeling to have. It is, it is, I think it's the worst feeling that you could experience is true, genuine fear of things and, and anxiety over things. And I thought, like, how can I, can I know the things that I know and believe the things that I believe, and yet at times just be so filled with fear? Now, not everybody is, feels that way. Not everybody feels it to that extreme. But in those moments, what I realize is that my fear is in all of my circumstances not being what they are. It's in things changing and That was incredibly dramatic. <laughs> Does anybody know how to turn those back on? No. Okay. It's going to be dark in here for a little bit while we figure okay. that out. Yeah. All right. What play are we on? <laughs> what are we on? Yeah. There is in that fear, the fear of circumstances, the fear of things just falling apart, not going the way I want them to go. I realize my fear is this, that, that things will go badly and I'll realize that I'm just standing on the sand. That, 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 that those things need to be good for me to be good. That life needs to be okay for me to be okay. That I'm not standing on a firm enough foundation. That I'm not solid enough in my life and the way that I'm rooted and what I believe in. That everything else can fall away and all those things can happen that I'm worried about. And that somehow it will be okay because my life isn't about those things. And it's in those moments that I realize I don't know God as much as I need to know God. I I know a lot of things about God, and I've spent a long time trying to know God more. But why do we need to know him? Because we need something firm that we are standing on. And we can't just have that by reading stuff about him, by kind of learning some information and some things about him. We gain that by knowing him. And he says, that is my desire, that you would know me, that you would know how big and powerful I am, that you would know that I'm a God of love who redeems and rescues, that I'm a God of judgment, that I'm a God of right and a God of wrong and a God of justice. And not just that, but I'm a powerful God. I am so powerful, he shows us in this. That's the part of it that's so crazy and so scary. Imagine what it's like to be an Egyptian in this. The reason it's hard to study this is because it's nearly impossible, it feels, to actually put ourselves in this place because it's just so terrifying and crazy. I mean, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't have communication. They didn't have a way of someone telling them, hey, by the way, the Pharaoh's been talking to this crazy guy and he says that God's gonna strike us down with plagues. So if something crazy happens, that's probably what that is. That is not what happened for most of the Egyptians they begin witnessing and experiencing these things one after another, and they begin experiencing all of creation itself being pulled apart. As Genesis 1 shows us that God can put everything together, these chapters in Exodus show us that if God wants to, he can pull it all apart. And he is physically capable of doing that. The Nile is poison and the fish die. Frogs pile up and die. Gnats and flies come. Animals get sick and people get boiled. Storms, hail, fire, fire. Rain, locusts, and then you're plunged into pitch darkness for three days to just think about it all. And that's what you're left with. There are so many things that are so powerful and we don't really take them into account. We don't really think about how powerful they are most of the time. We have this eclipse and it's like all everyone's talking about is how powerful the sun is because the eclipse was coming. Don't look at the sun. Don't look at the sun, unless you're in totality, don't look at the sun. If you look at the sun, wear the glasses? You got the wrong glasses, get the right glasses. It's powerful. The sun is powerful. And like it's there, it gives us life. We don't think about it a lot. But even in those moments when we're so focused on it, and we do start to think about how big it is and how powerful it is, and we realize how it is so powerful that if we even look at the thing, we're blinded. At least that's what they say. I don't know, you know. There was this one article that came out right before, right before it. And it was this guy saying, here's how I got blinded by looking. And that was the one that got me. I was like, okay, fine. It's real, I won't look at the sun. <laughs> I was on a hike with my kids the other day. We were trying to go to that cemetery, the, organ, the cemetery that's like you know on this creepy, like scary path. It's not a scary path, it's a beautiful path. And then you get to this creepy cemetery that's all chained off and it's really old. And, uh, and anywhere off that path, you can kind of go off. There's these other areas and you go off towards sort of where the river is. And, you know, I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old with me who aren't particularly good at doing anything I tell them to do. And so when we come out of the woods and we're at a cliff, I go, let's go the other way because they will just, they'll just run off of it. You know, they won't even think about it and they won't listen to me. That's for sure. And they definitely want to see what's over it. But when I get close enough to something like that, I I, I get an immediate sense of respect and awe for the power of just being up that high and the magnificence of that thing. Imagine being dropped in the middle of the ocean. You can swim, you know how to swim, but you've been dropped in the middle of the ocean. The size and the power of that thing, the awe that that brings is something that we don't often think about and ascribe to God. And when we read this and we see this, one of the crazy things about it is we go, oh yeah, that's the scope and the scale of the God that we're talking about here that as personal as he is, and as much as we think about it that way, he's a God who can do these things. And he did these things. And we see in these that he is one true God. That nature, creation are all amoral things, but he is moral. He, he tells us there is, there is a right way to treat people and to be with people, and this isn't it. He says there must be justice, there must be truth. And sometimes it isn't this, and it isn't this. And he shows us what it is. He's doing a lot more than just showing himself to Egypt. After hundreds of years of silence, he's making himself known. He's saying this is right and that was wrong. And when they don't listen, he forces them to hear it through these plagues. He shows in so many ways that he can literally do anything he wants to do. And the other thing that we see in these, and it's the first lesson that we learned in all of Exodus is this don't make yourself an enemy to God. Because Pharaoh has made himself from the outset an enemy to God. People say, why would God harden his heart? Because long before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he made himself an enemy to God. He said, I am your enemy and I will not let your people go. And so God said, I'm going to harden your heart so that no matter how bad things get, they'll keep getting worse until I decide that it's time to be done. His insistence to be in control of his people, his nation, and his life has distorted his ability to see what's really going on in this world It's just made him arrogant. When you read in the New Testament about sin and what it does to people, you read about these kinds of things. You read about deception and distortion. You read about blindness. And then you read about callousness and a hardness of heart. You read about all these different things that sin does to us when it makes us enemies of God. And so while it's easy to read this, to look at this account and go, man, that guy was bad and those Egyptians were bad, but you know, we're the good ones, we're the Israelites, we're the great ones. We have to recognize something. Like there are tremendous parallels between what we see here and a person's, a person's life moving forward from here in the present here and now. Because what scripture tells us is that, is that we all started out as enemies of God because of sin. Like opponents of God. Not not indifferent, not somewhere in the middle, but like enemy. And that the only way to him is through what Jesus has done. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that this week's message kind of lined up with communion, because we're going to take communion after this. And and, and the reason why we take communion is Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to remember often exactly what saves you, exactly what I've done for you and my sacrifice for you. He does that because he knows our tendency is to not remember that, but it's to think that it's all these other things that save us, that it's all these other things that make us okay. But that's not true. It's what Jesus has done. So if, if you're here and you're here and, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, and you, you know God, then what we see in this is the call that we need to know him more, that he says, I want to be known more by you. And if you're, if you're not a follower of his, if you're not that person, then, then the response today is a very simple and clear one. Like you're either an enemy of God or you're one of his people. You're either one or the other. And the only thing that you can do to respond to this is to say, I will not be an enemy of God any longer. To say, I recognize what Jesus did on the cross, that he died, that he gave his life so that I could be saved, so that God could rescue me from captivity that I'm in right now. And that we recognize that he is not just a God of mercy and of rescuing, but he is a God of justice. The Israelites are about to find that out. They're about to find out what it's like to come out of jail and have to deal with your mom. Because they're going to come out of the desert, they're going to come out into the desert, and they're going to start having to deal with God. That's going to be when we talk about the holy people stuff. But right now we're talking a lot about the holiness of God. But when we get to that, we realize that he is a God who has these two sides to him, and they're so incredibly important for us to follow Him moving forward. So we're going to take communion, and we're going to do it a little bit differently than we've been doing it for a while at least. We just have it on some tables, and... There's one here and one here. There's one in the back. And um, as, the, as the band leads through the next couple songs, we're going to spend some time in reflection. We're going to spend some time in response to this. Um, you can come up and kneel and pray if you'd like to. You can, uh, you can just, whenever you feel led, you can go to one of those tables. You can take communion at the table. You can take it back to your seat and take it there. I'm not going to get back up and lead anybody through it. That's just something that you can do. Um, like I said, we do this because Jesus, when he on the very last night, he was with his disciples. He ate with them, and after he ate, he took bread and he took wine, and he said, "I want you to take this often in remembrance of me." He said, "I want you to take this bread, which represents my body, which has been broken for you. When you eat it, I want you to eat it in remembrance of me." He says, "I want you to take this wine that has been that represents my blood, that's been spilled for you. When you drink it, I want you to drink it in remembrance of me. As long as you eat this bread, drink this." Drink this blood. You'll you'll or drink this wine. You'll proclaim my death until I return again. And that's why we do it because we're prone to think that it's all these other things that could save us, or we're prone to think that we're not really dead to begin with, that we're not really enemies of God to begin with, and that communion has reminded us of exactly where we stand and where we stood and where one day we will we will be. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. I thank you that you're a good God and a great God. You're a God of justice and you're a God of mercy and saving. Lord, we confess that we often think we know enough about you already. We often think that we're doing just fine, but we're not. God, our prayer is that as we reflect upon what you did there in these chapters that we've read, what you did um, in Egypt, was that you revealed who you are to your people and to your enemy. That you revealed how big and powerful you are. You revealed how loving you are in rescuing your people, and you revealed that you are a just God and that you will not let evil go unrepaid, Father. I pray that as we reflect on that, that we would reflect upon just how very fortunate we are to have a God like you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Father, we recognize that as we sing it. There really is no one like you. There's no one that can stand beside you. There is nothing that even comes close to you. But for a lot of us, we have to confess that we don't really feel that way much of the time, that there are lots of things that we think are better than you or are as good as you. And we look to those things, God, instead of you. Father, you are a God who is merciful, who is loving. You're a God who rescues, pursues, and you're also a God who is just, who punishes the evil, judges the wicked. God, we love this about you, even though at any given point in our lives, each of these things is really hard for us to accept. We pray that you would be that God in our lives, that we would know you more fully and be changed as we know you more, Lord. We pray that as a church, that we would be standing upon the gospel, what we just remembered through communion, that we would be a place that has the gospel and brings forth the gospel more than any other thing that we do or are about, Lord. Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.